Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast where we often push back against labeling people merely as members of groups. Instead, we should celebrate our individual differences and common humanity. In this episode, we learn about autism from a journalist who is autistic himself and how autistic people have long been misunderstood and labeled by others who often don't have personal experience of it. We're not broken. Changing the autism conversation. Eric Garcia. My main point is that autistic people are fine as they are. Do they have challenges? Yes, just like any other people. Do they have impairments because it's a disability? Yes, I think autism is a disability and that comes with certain impairments. But the idea that they are fundamentally flawed or failed human beings is not true. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Chances are you know someone who's autistic. About 2% of Americans, or around 1 in 50, have been diagnosed. Public views of autism have been changing, but we still have so many misconceptions about what it is. There are wild theories that autism is caused by vaccines. Parents have been blamed for their children's autism. Both of those claims are false. And autistic people have been frequently misunderstood and isolated from others, as well as being mistreated. Our guest today is a political journalist who has autism and wants to debunk myths about it and to change public policy. Eric Garcia is the senior Washington correspondent for the UK newspaper, The Independent. He's also worked at the Washington Post, National Journal, and Market Watch. His new book is We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Eric joins us on How Do We Fix It from Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Eric, I know very little about autism. So what does this term autism spectral disorder mean? How can we understand it better? What happened was was autism spectrum is essentially a developmental disability that often is a communicative disorder and also has uh, causes difficulty with social interaction. The problem and the reason why I wrote this book is that for so long it has been criminally misunderstood 
And I think the thing that's important to recognize is that autism does exist on a spectrum. So there are people like myself who can speak, can hold a job, can live independently somewhat. Then there are people who might need a little bit more assistance, who might need a 24-hour aid person. Then there might be some people who might need 24-7 around-the-clock care, and they might not be able to speak. But the point being is that essentially there are more similarities and differences. So even though there's a spectrum, there are still fairly similar traits. Eric, you say that too many people have tropes instead of knowledge about autism. What are some of those tropes? I think the main ones are, you know, let's talk about the, the main one that everybody freaks out about, which is the vaccine. Just let's put that out in the open. That is not true. Vaccines do not cause autism. I think other ones are that it is something that autistic people are unempathetic or they are unloving or there is this idea that they are that it is something that only affects uh, white male adolescent boys, uh, and that it is only something that affects people who are upper class. It is something that means that you cannot form relationships with other people that you you know romantic or platonic friendships or fam or familial relationships. There is this idea that autistic people cannot hold a job. And if they can't hold a job, that they can only be working in sheltered workshops and be paid below minimum wage. Or there is this idea that, uh, you know, conversely, that they're all, you know, super geniuses in Silicon Valley or whatever. So there are plenty of tropes about autism that just, you know, simply aren't true. That makes life for autistic people extremely difficult. One of those misconceptions is that autistic people are typically, as you mentioned, white males who who work in technology. Yeah, that's honestly like in some weird ways, almost kind of a selection bias, because guess who can get diagnosed? Guess who can afford to get diagnosed? It's upper class white males who work in Silicon Valley, because a lot of times it is incredibly expensive to get an autism diagnosis. A lot of times even insurance companies don't even cover it. What happens? Who are the types of people who can get diagnosed? It's people from, you know, higher income levels. And on top of that, it's important to remember that the first studies about autism were done with white, mostly male children being the test subjects. The first study about autism that was done in the United States was a guy by the name of Leo Connor at Johns Hopkins University. Eight of the 11 children he studied, he surveyed in his initial study were boys, three of them were girls. On top of that, nine of those 11 students were white Anglo-Saxon and only two of them were Jewish. That took place over a long time so that even now as we're getting better at diagnosing people of color, women, girls, adults, um, we're using criteria that was based off of a very limited sample of the population. And what are we learning now that we're looking at a broader cross-section of people with autism? I was looking at my Google alerts right now. Uh, there was just a, a local news in New Jersey, I think, said, um, what's to account for the increasing cases of autism? And I'm like, it's not an increasing cases of autism. It's just that there are more people who are getting diagnosed. It's important to remember, autism didn't get, get its own separate diagnosis in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders until 1980. 
it was initially, I think, in 1952, it was initially under the symptoms of schizophrenia. And again, in 1968, it was again under the symptoms of schizophrenia. So it doesn't get its own separate diagnosis until 1980. Then also what happened is in 1990, there was the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And what it said was it said that autism in the past has been misunderstood and it hasn't been included. So it specifically included autism. And what it said was that these students are entitled to a free, appropriate public education. Now schools had to report how many children, disabled children of all disabilities, they had to report those numbers to the federal government. And so what happened is that there were just more students. And now that autism was being included, schools were just reporting more students. The problem was that I think a lot of people saw those numbers and they thought, oh, my God, there's an epidemic. And that is what led to some really bad actors capitalizing on this. Well, how many people do have autism in America? Is is there a, a rough guide, a rough estimate that's been made? That's a good question. Uh, so the latest numbers, I believe, is somewhere between one to 50 children. But let's be, there was an estimate uh, by the CDC. So about 2%. About 2%, yes. Remember, there has, but there hasn't been a full-fledged survey of autistic adults. I think last year the CDC put out a number showing that it's around the same number of adults, but there hasn't been a full-fledged survey and comprehensive study of how many uh, autistic adults there are. It's pretty hard to track. I'll just say that. The idea for your book, Eric, came uh, several years ago when, as a reporter out covering uh, politics, you interviewed an office holder who, at the end of the interview, turned around and asked you a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, Representative Sherry Bosos from Illinois. I was I mentioned that I'm from Chicago. She's she she was from Illinois, and uh, then I said, like, you know, what are Democrats doing? You know, to help a proverbial single mom raising an autistic kid. I said, like myself. She said, so what's it like being autistic? And I was like, that is a really good question. And what it said to me was, wow, if Elected officials don't know a lot. That must mean that that they get really bad information. At the same time, you know, I had come up just two years before Donald Trump had been promoting his, the idea when he was running for president, he said that autism was an epidemic and it was caused by the vaccines. Um, Even as late as 2008, John McCain and Barack Obama were talking about vaccines and autism. You could say, oh, well, Trump is Trump. But like Obama and McCain agree with them or disagree with them. These are guys who, you know, they... They're smart guys, you know, that ultimately kind of triggered me thinking that, wow, if we get really bad information, then that must mean we really don't have a lot of good things that help autistic people live fulfilling lives. So that was really what kind of set me out on my course. The vast majority of research into autism and and media coverage is done by people with no personal experience of it. Is that part of the problem that you're you're trying to address here? Absolutely. A lot of gatekeepers, a lot of journalists, a lot of researchers, clinicians, they might have a connection to it, which is to say they might have a loved one who's autistic, they might have worked with autistic children, or they might have, you know, they they may be researching it, but they're important. I don't want to take away anything from that. But if we focus solely on people who are only tangentially affected by autism and not by autistic people themselves, we're going to not really have the best ideas or the best plans for autistic people. The problem is we've, we spend a lot of time talking 
past autistic people and not enough time talking to autistic people. I think that you're starting to see a change. It's a slow but steady sea change, but it is still predominantly, I think that a lot of autistic people are still not heard over the voices of parents or clinicians or researchers or professors. A lot of people, I think in a well-intentioned way, like to use this concept that some people with autism are high functioning and some people are yeah. low functioning. And you feel that that kind of terminology is not helpful, right? High functioning and low functioning are really based on how you perceive autistic people rather than what they need. And it's so if you call someone low functioning, that sets the bar incredibly low for what we can expect from them. But also what it says is that it, it also kind of implicitly argues, well, we don't need to spend that much money on them. We don't need to focus on educating them. Conversely, when you say uh, someone is high functioning, the argument is, well, well, they don't need that many accommodations. They don't need that many services because they're high functioning. So either way, you wind up not really serving autistic people well by using those terms. So I tend to prefer terms like high support need and low support need autistic, just because I think that that's based off of what autistic people need and less about how they are perceived. When people use these terms, yeah. they might be well-intentioned. Absolutely. What do, what do they describe and what is the difference between a, what people call a high-functioning autistic person and, say, a low-functioning? Yeah, that is a really good question. I think that a lot of times when, the, when you see – because if you were to see just me – you would think that I'm what a lot of people would consider, quote unquote, high functioning. I live independently. I have a job. I graduated from college. I don't need like around the clock care that a lot of people would consider low functioning to be somebody who might not be able to speak with their mouths. You know, they might require around the clock care. They might require a personal aid or they might require a communication device. But the problem with that is that I think it ignores the legitimate needs that someone like me has. Because a lot of times you could just see, you just, when people say high functioning, they just see the person in front of them. They don't see all the kind of, it's like a skyscraper. They don't see all the scaffolding and all the work that it takes to uphold a person. And that's totally okay. We all have support systems. Every human being has a support system. But I think that a lot of people, when it comes to autistic people, they kind of almost look down on their support systems. But like, and then conversely, I think when you say someone is low functioning, you don't see their potential. You don't see what they can do. You know, a perfect example is someone I know named Hari Srinivasan, who is a student at Berkeley. He has limited speaking capacity. He went through a bunch of treatments because people wanted to force him to be something he wasn't. And it was only after he got a communication device that he started to thrive. He's now a student at Berkeley. He's on the federal government's advisory committee for autism. That, I think, again, shows how flattening the terms of high functioning or low functioning can be. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We're speaking with Eric Garcia. And his new book is called We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One of the things that struck me in your book, Eric, was you tell us that about 75% of all spending on autism research goes into finding cures or treatments rather than in looking for ways to help people with autism cope and get by in our society. What's the impact of that? Yeah. So uh, in 2016, um, a portfolio study showed that of the $364 million that's spent by private and public entities, so that's nonprofits and the federal government, in the United States goes toward autism and biology, which is like looking at what causes autism. Uh, And then like another 24% is like risk factors. You know, what are ways that people might be at risk about autism? And then like, you know, another amount is treatments. Only 2% is focused on researching lifespan issues. Well, you know, autistic people are only in the womb for nine months, you know, (laughs) and they're only kids for 18 years legally. But autistic people get old, you know, grow up. They hopefully more of them, uh, more of them are getting old, but we don't know how to help them transition to adulthood. We don't know the things that they would need. We shouldn't be so focused on looking at what causes autism at the expense of looking at how to uh, help autistic people in the here and now live good lives. Eric, our show is How Do We Fix It? So let's talk a little bit about how we change the way we we talk about autism when we're trying to help people yeah. have better lives. I think the most important thing to do is to listen to what autistic people say. I get heat for this. I get a lot of smoke for this. But, uh, you know, a lot of parents say, oh, well, it's easy. You know, you don't speak for my kid. And you're right. I don't speak for your kid. But, you, you know, because a lot of them say, oh, well, you're, you can speak. You can have a job, things like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, I still have meltdowns. I still have difficulty with sensory processing. And I still have a lot of trouble. And I, can, I think that I have a certain sense of what, to, of what your kid goes through. And I think in the same respect, you can listen. Like if your child is having a meltdown, that's a response to overstimulation. Um, behavior is communication. Multiple parents I know say by listening, even if they have children who might have higher support needs, by listening to autistic people with lower support needs, they learn how to do better, be better as parents and being better with their loved ones. I think in the same respect, I think the other thing is to always think about what is the best way to like, would you do this for your non autistic child. So the perfect example of this is there's a school in Massachusetts that subjects autistic people to shock therapy. You would never think of putting your neurotypical child through this, that the United Nations literally considers torture. In the same way, you would never think of saying that your non-disabled child should work for less than a minimum, minimum wage. But a lot of people say defend paying disabled people below minimum wage 
and autistic people because they say, well, they wouldn't have a job otherwise or things like that. So I think the thing, the, the, the main question when you talk about how do you fix it is another thing is like, would I subject a typically developing child to this? So in recent years, Eric, the landscape has been changing for the better in some ways, and slowly we are getting a more nuanced, truthful view of autism. One recent example, some large companies are changing their employment practices. What's your take? So, you know, there has been a big push in recent years to hire for autism hiring programs, Goldman Sachs and Microsoft and SAP uh, and, and UBS. So I think it's important to include autistic people in the decision-making process, whether it be in business or education or school or government or whatever. Listen to their input and take it seriously and not kind of silo it. And I think that's the most important is, is creating policy with autistic people in mind. Is part of the answer uh, more government spending? And if so, in what areas? Absolutely it is. Uh, you know, so one example is uh, President Joe Biden has proposed uh, earlier this year, he proposed spending $400 billion in home and community-based care, which is to say uh, that is providing disability services not in nursing homes or institutions, but rather in, in home care. The problem is that it costs a lot of money. Because uh, right now there is a waiting list of about 800,000 people in the United States. This is a wait list for people who want to get home health care. Home, home, home and community-based services. Yes, exactly. Uh, so that's not even just the amount of people who are recipients. That's just to get on the waiting list. Yeah, so spending is a, is a big part of it. What about businesses? Let's say we take that step of reaching out and listening to their autistic employees in crafting policies, then what? After that, then um, then you have to do outreach. You have to think about, uh, okay, where can we find autistic people? You know, maybe accepting people who might not necessarily graduate from college. A lot of autistic people have difficulty gra- graduating from college. Plenty of people I know. Uh, you know, considering people who might have an unconventional way of going to college or people who didn't necessarily uh, or, or didn't necessarily think about working in that particular sector, meeting people where they are. Those are all ways. People talk about autism as a disability, and of course, it does involve impairments, but are there things in your life where you feel like it has contributed in some positive way to your experience? Certainly. I don't think that I would be able to focus kind of single-mindedly on what I do and whether whether, whether it's my work or whether it's uh, writing this book or anything like that, if I weren't autistic. I think that in some ways as a reporter, because social norms are kind of my second language, I don't have a lot of uh, tolerance for niceties if they are used to get in the way of the truth. So yeah, those are ways. Yeah. I, I was um, interviewed by a great reporter from the LA Times one time and he sat in my office and he just asked questions and he like gave no response yeah. <laughs> to my answers. And it was kind of unnerving, but you, because you're used to that. So those social niceties and yet it was incredibly effective. And, yeah. and, he, and he wound up, you know, writing a, by not trying to be friends with the people he was interviewing, it really enhanced the, the quality of the piece that he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So. I found this interview to be really helpful, Eric. Um, what do you want to leave people with? My main point is that autistic people are fine as they are. Do they have challenges? Yes, just like any other people. 
do they have impairments because it's a disability? Yes, I think autism is a disability and that comes with certain impairments. But the idea that they are fundamentally flawed or failed human beings is not true. So I think what I want to say is start from the premise that autistic people are whole as human beings and then go from there. Eric Garcia, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. Eric Garcia, coming next, a couple of recommendations. Jim, you start. Well, I'm going to re-recommend something I mentioned uh, in a previous episode because it just seems so appropriate to this. And it's the documentary that came out in 2020 called Crip Camp. It's a look at a really remarkable summer camp that got set up in the early 70s for disabled children, some of them uh, fairly profoundly uh, disabled, and how empowering it was for all these kids to go somewhere where they were just treated like kids. And if somebody hit the ball in softball and was in a wheelchair, someone else would push them around the bases. And all of these kids said it was life-changing. Several of them went on to become advocates for the disabled. So it's just a really inspiring movie. Crip Camp, you can watch it online on Netflix. And I also have a, a recommendation related to this show. And that is while I was doing research for the interview with Eric, I happened across a podcast called Aught Hour, which is um, a podcast by a British host, Sarah Gibbs, who has autism and interviews autistic authors about their life and work. Uh, she talks about her own experiences with autism and, and learns from others. It's, it's, if you want to know more about autism, this is a good way to do it. Um, Aught Hour is a podcast. I just want to start with the fact that Eric drills down to the thing that you and I have kind of founded this podcast on, Richard, and that is most solutions start with listening. And I think that that's not enough by itself, but that's where you start. And then making progress from listening to people often involves care. And it doesn't always come with a specific policy prescription, maybe care in the form of, of government programs that liberals favor or community or, or charity care or church care that more conservative communities favor. But I think that that word care is often underused. I also was impressed with the way that Eric really stresses countering some of the misinformation about autism. So it's, it is really important to make sure that we do everything we can to keep our society fact-based. And so, you know, listening to people, being tolerant to their, their ideas, even if they're wrong, but then doing everything we can to encourage people to come back to solidly grounded facts, which is, it sounds so easy and so obvious. And yet uh, I, as you know, I feel that that the respect for facts is to some degree under attack in our society today. A final thought on this interview. Um, Eric's book is called We're Not Broken, and that's a radical concept when it comes to discussing autism. Um, perhaps it's obvious after you consider it, but it 
involves a, a, a major rethink of how we consider uh, this question, this problem, this opportunity that's presented by listening to people with autism. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Davies Content can be found at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.